0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Well, hello, everybody. How's it going? Good. Um, It is fun to be in this uh, spot today. Feels a little strange. (laughs) To be honest, if we haven't met before, my name is Melody, and I'm usually the people doing the people. I'm just one person. But um, I'm usually doing what Michael and Sarah, so. Beautifully, and Alia did uh, this morning leading you in musical worship. Uh, but today, I get to do something a little different, serve you in a different way. Um, I'm the music and arts director here, and I started that job at the end of January. And since then, it's just been a really uh, beautiful, a really fun adventure. My, one of my favorite parts about it has been connecting with the artists in this community. And if you're not aware, we have a really, really rich. Beautiful community of artists that come to church here, and I've just really enjoyed getting to know them So I'm gonna do a little commercial um, at the beginning here for the artists in the community to specifically um, One she was here in the 930. I don't know if she's here at the 11 But her name is Brianna Rossiter and if you walked in this morning, you saw her poetry out in the gallery um, Space she's our new artist in residence And I uh, just really encourage you to engage with those uh, works of poetry, just because I believe in that art form, and I think we need it. Today, um, images can bring you to a place that regular words can't. So if that's something that uh, you feel compelled to do, please spend some time back there reading that. Um, The other artist that I want to bring to your attention this morning is someone you've seen up here playing percussion from time to time. Her name's Jenny Kluken, and she's a uh, marimba player. Has anyone ever heard the marimba before? Oh, I see like some fists back there, yeah. Awesome. Um, It's such a cool instrument, and uh, she is amazing at it. She teaches at McPhail. I talked her into bringing her marimba next Sunday morning to play for us, but she's also doing a full concert here in a couple weeks, Saturday night, August 24th. So put that on your calendar. Like if you want to hear some really cool, cool music, you'll want to be here that night to both support Jenny and then just hear her music. Um, But like I said, I'm usually up there. Uh, Today I get to be here and I get to serve you in a different way uh, and talk to you this morning about something that's really very close to my heart as a person that believes in uh, good theology and believes that good theology really matters. Show of hands, who was here last week at Awaken? Don't be ashamed if you weren't. We all get that it's cabin season in Minnesota. Um, But if you were here, you heard my friend Sarah Wilhelm Garbers um, unpack a passage where Jesus uh, speaks of himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And the invitation that she gave was just that. She said that word, That phrase is actually an invitation, not a box being drawn saying these people are in and these people are out. So she kind of helped us change our view of God. And this morning, I kind of want to go along those lines and talk about our view of God, but in a little bit of a different way, because I believe this morning that your image of God, and by that I mean the picture in your imagination when you close your eyes and when you think of God, that picture is so important and it probably is the greatest impact not only on your relationship with God, but your relationship with yourself, with your closest people around you, and the other, meaning the person that's distant or different from you. I believe that your image of God greatly, greatly matters. My image of God uh, as a little girl was affected by two major things. The first is the church that I grew up in. I grew up going to an Assembly of God church Do we have any other former Assembly of Goders? Oh yeah, oh, Groves family in the front row. Um, (laughs) Yeah, good people over there in the AG. Um, And I I went to church a lot. Uh, Sunday morning, usually I was there for all the services because I was doing music in some way, shape, or form where my parents were. Um, So Sunday morning, Sunday night, a completely different worship experience. We would have two each on Sunday. And then we would do Thursday night choir rehearsal I was there for that usually. Wednesday night, kids programming. Uh, the kids programming for girls was called Missionettes. Do I have any former Missionettes here? Yes, Gro's family, the front row. Um, <laughs> so glad you guys are here. Um, so uh, Missionettes was the girls programming. The boys programming was called Royal Rangers. So the boys, they earned badges, and they earned badges and all this really cool stuff. Like they would go camping. They would carve wood things. I would see them playing sports outside. And guess what the girls' badges were? Any, any guesses? What? Cooking. cooking, yes, cooking. Cleaning, ironing, babysitting, laundry. Yes, yes. <laughs> Deeply ingrained in me were the gender roles of my childhood. Um, so, along with all of that, what we were supposed to do in Missionettes is we were supposed to read the entire Bible. And in order to graduate from the program or be called an honor star, you had to read every chapter of the Bible, and you literally had a checklist with little boxes in it, and every time you read a chapter, you checked off the little box. Um, and I, about the day before that that whole checklist was due, realized, well, oh, I think I've only read about maybe five chapters of the Bible, but I was so bound and determined to graduate that I just went ahead and checked off all those little boxes, really deceptively became an honor star. Um, Super glad I got that off my chest this morning. Thank you for allowing me that vulnerable space. Um, But when I think about that image, I realize how much that image really defined who God was to me. God was this guy up in the sky looking down on me, making sure that I was checking off all the boxes. Like, just go to church, you'll be fine, check. Just read the Bible, you'll be fine, check. Don't ask questions. Don't adventure through faith. Don't do those things because you might not check off a box or you might do it wrong. And then something's wrong then with your relationship with me and then you're really in trouble because the end of the world is coming really soon. That's a different topic for a different day. Um, So God was authoritarian punisher, really. The second thing that affected my image of God was my relationship with my dad, and that makes a lot of sense because, In the Bible, there's all this really, really beautiful and good imagery about God as Father. And the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, You, O Yahweh, are our Father. A Redeemer of old is your name. And Jesus himself is constantly saying things like, The Father and I are one. And also he teaches us how to pray and begins by saying, Our Father. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 One of my favorite portions of scripture, he says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Does anyone else really love that verse? I for sure have. It's been a really good one for me. So, little Melody, growing up in AG Church, a million times a week, grew this very strong connection with God as my father. But here was the problem with that. My dad, along with being a really, really brilliant musician, architect, really passionate guy, he was a very deeply troubled man. He lived pretty much his whole life with a lot of rage and a lot of mental illness. And my uh, connection with him was pretty poor. He didn't really take a lot of interest in me. He He really couldn't. And I didn't really realize until my 20s how much my broken relationship with my dad had disfigured my relationship with God. And in that point of my life, my inner world was really crumbling. I couldn't sleep. I was really depressed, I was really anxious. Felt really disconnected from myself, from God, from other people. So I took some really drastic measures, actually moved to Florida, from Minnesota to Florida. Lived with my mom, who I had a pretty decent relationship with at the time and started therapy, thank God. Uh, And I was working a job there, and my friend that I worked with as I was kind of sharing some of my, the turmoil that I was experiencing, um, she said, have you ever thought about asking God to re-father you and re-parent you? And I was like, no. (laughs) I didn't know that was an option. Um, And so I did. For the first time in my life, I really engaged with God. And I asked God, I was like, would you please show me yourself as my good father? And guess what happened? He did. And I remember the day, just as clear as it was yesterday, I was driving my car and I was listening to a song that I was supposed to lead at church the coming Sunday. And I just started weeping. And I had to literally pull over the car because I. I couldn't see. I was like, I can't drive. And as I pulled over my car and I closed my eyes, I remember just colors, like beautiful, bright colors in my head. And I realized at that moment that when I'd closed my eyes and envisioned God in the past, the colors were dark, gray, distant, very unapproachable. And I realized that God was my good father, who was actually taking joy in me, taking delight in me, who wanted me to approach him with everything, not just the shiny Christian parts. And that was a life-changing moment for me, and it was really, really good. Uh, so maybe this morning you're like, well, can we go home now? <laughs> like, is that it? You, you've seen God as your good father, and now you know that you're good? But actually, that's not the end of my continuing image of God, image of myself story. I thought that I knew that I was good. But then even after that, I still wrestled with some really like, deeply entrenched um, not enoughness, some inner shame, some anxiety. And you wanna know where I experienced that the most? Band rehearsals. So I have been leading worship for a long time. And uh, that time in my life, I really got the opportunity to come in as a leader. And my inner dialogue going into those moments went something like this. It said, you'd like to think that you know how to lead this well, but actually, you don't. And really, no one else in that rehearsal space, mostly men, they don't really think that you do either. That was just what was happening in my brain. So most of the time, I would really just shake my way through leading things. I would just apologetically shake, over-apologize for myself and my ideas. I would kind of put forth an idea, and then I'd say like, well, what do you think? Your idea is probably better than my idea. And honestly, I didn't really know why that was still something that I dealt with. I thought, oh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm a four on the Enneagram. I'm a little bit of a troubled musician. I'm just an anxious person by nature. I just deal with some shame, you know, troubled artist type, that's me. And I really made peace with that until I noticed a shift happening over the last couple of years, a shift towards trusting my own voice and my own ideas, trusting that God's voice was speaking to me and through me loud and clear, and that in God, I fully live, fully move, Fully have my being. And I'm going to explain why this shift happened here in a little bit. And we're going to look at how I got there. We're going to search through a lot of scripture. But before I do, let me just offer this quick disclaimer. That what I want to offer you this morning is not necessarily a new image of God. It's just an expanded one. Because that's what happened to me. My view of God really expanded. And here's how. It started, like I said before, as authoritarian punisher, moved to good father, and now has moved to the creative force that we actually see displayed in the book of Genesis chapters one to two. So to help me explain this shift, I'd love to begin by asking us to read out loud together a really familiar portion of scripture. It's gonna be up on the screen here, so if you could read this aloud with me. This comes from Genesis chapter two. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. for she was taken out of man. So here, as I'm sure most of you are aware, we have an English translation, specifically the New International Version of a Hebrew passage describing the creation of humanity. And in this translation, there's a pretty clear picture painted for us, and that is God forming a one being, a man, and in little ag girls, uh, Melody, Melody's mind, I always thought, oh, a man, a person with male anatomy. God makes this male person first, takes one rib from his body, and creates a female so that Adam, the man, could have the help that he needed to do all the work that he was given to do. So, little Melody understood her gender's creation to be, at best, A nice, sweet afterthought. That when God created my womankind, it wasn't his first idea. Because God is a man, and he wanted to create someone in his image, so he created a man first. And I actually was really okay with that, mostly because I never thought it was okay to question the Bible, or question the way that it was being taught to me. Until, one very fateful day when I was given the amazing opportunity to study scripture with a friend named Larry Hoke who had studied with another person who I have had the pleasure of meeting and studying with. His name's Rabbi Alan Allman. I know that some of you in this room have met him. Really beautiful person. Um, really important voice in my life and a lot of us here. So anyways, I'm in this room uh, studying with a close group of friends with my friend Larry. And we look at this passage, and um, I learned this. Let's look at verse seven again. In the Hebrew, the word for a man and the man is actually the word Adam, not the, the proper name Adam or Adam, but the Hebrew noun Adam, which means earthly. So your regular ancient Hebrew person Would not have heard male, they would have heard earthling. That God formed an earthling from the dust of the ground, not a man, not a woman, but an earthling. So, some of you this morning are maybe like, okay, I get that. But what about the his, where it says his nostrils? Doesn't that clearly depict God as being, or uh, the person, the being being male? Well, here's something that Western Christians, most of us don't understand or know about the Hebrew language because it's a lot different than English and it's the way that pronouns work. So we're gonna get a little bit grammatical here and talk about grammatical gender, so stick with me. In English, we have what are called gender-neutral pronouns so that when we're talking about something that doesn't have a gender, like a book, like this book, for example, we refer to it as an it the Hebrew language has no gender-neutral pronouns. So quite literally every word that has an object, that is an object, has a gender associated to it. So this book in Hebrew is called a sefer, and if I were to talk about it and say, I'm holding this book, if I wanted to use a pronoun, I wouldn't say it, I'm holding it in my hands, I would say, I'm holding him in my hands. And actually in verse seven, there is no pronoun his in the original Hebrew, but the word for nostril is the word off, which is a masculine noun. So no wonder the translators would have translated and then called it his nostrils. Not to mention that the translators are all straight white men who probably weren't thinking of women for sure weren't thinking about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters when they were writing this and writing it, translating it in a very patriarchal culture. But I know that we've heard Micah talk about that, so I'm just going to leave that there. Um, but maybe what you haven't considered yet is that all of the words he and his in Genesis 1 and 2, when the Hebrew people were, would hear these pronouns, they wouldn't think of a male. They would think of a, an earthling and a God who's gender-full. It was really more of a language thing than it was an anatomy thing. So now, maybe some of you are like, but what about the rest of the story? Woman is an afterthought, right? Made from Adam's rib. So here's one of my favorite parts about this. Let's look at verses 21 to 22 again. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed it up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The phrase translated into Hebrew, he took one of the man's ribs. In Hebrew, it reads, and I practice this, so I'm really excited about it. L'chaak echad selah. Thank you. Thanks, Jenna. Um, and in Hebrew, a much better translation, I think of it, is laid hold of one's side. So the way that an ancient Hebrew person would have envisioned this is not God reaching in and taking one rib out of Adam's body, but grabbing one side of an earthling's body. One side of a body that I want to suggest to you this morning in this very metaphorical, poetic Genesis writing is full of gender, because God is a genderful being. So God grabs one side, separates them, and actually the full image if you read further in the Hebrew is separates them and turns them to face one another. Because another word in this translation that I believe very poorly translated is the word helper in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, that's the NIV. But in the King James Version, it's actually more accurately translated as help meet. The Hebrew phrase is ezer Kenegedo. Let's all say it together, ezer kenegado. isn't that kind of fun to say? The word ezer means help uh, means uh, "help," and then the word meet, kenegado. is actually two Hebrew words together. The prefix is ke, which means like, and then the next word is a root verb um, neged, which means face to face. So it's more accurately translated, one who helps, like she is face to face. So this other half-being is not below, not subjugate, but standing on equal ground. And this image actually makes a lot of sense when you read Genesis 1. Right after chapter 1's account of the creation of humanity, there is this beautiful Hebrew poem. In English it reads, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the Hebrew writer here, who was maybe Moses, we don't really know for sure, moves from prose to poetry. Probably to use art to express something that is so highly mysterious that plain language just wouldn't do but most certainly to express something very, very important, that the image of the divine has been equally imparted. Which leads me to believe again this morning that God is not just male, not just female, but a mysterious spirit that somehow fully contains both. I thought honestly beyond my understanding, but as I have slowly let my images of God move from masculine and allowing myself to see God also as a feminine being, a locked door inside of me has sprung wide open and I have embraced myself as a full image bearer. Because again, according to the ancient Hebrew understanding, God is a genderful being who first created a genderful being and saw fit to create a relationship between the two. Oh, I get this morning that this may be an uncomfortable shift because honestly it really was for me too I remember when I first read uh, the book traveling mercies by Anne Lamott and she from time to time in that book uses the pronoun she when referring to God and when I read that I was like oh <laughs> like, that doesn't feel right wait God's a man right but that was a while ago and since then now when I hear he My first thought is, don't forget the she, because you are as much of an image-bearer as your male counterparts are. So maybe this morning you're totally open to this new idea, and also maybe you're not. And that's okay. Really, all is welcome here. But if you're wanting to expand your view, what I'd like to do now is offer just a few images right from scripture that show us feminine pictures of God, as well as a couple uh, stories that show that hard at work. The first one is right in the beginning, Genesis 1, one to two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was covering the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, many of you already know that that Hebrew word translated spirit is the word ruach, which is a feminine noun. So the pronoun used when referring to the spirit in the ancient Hebrew world was actually she. And the word for hovering is the word rachaf. One of the only other times this word is used in the Old Testament is in the book of Deuteronomy, when God is described as an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers rakav over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them, and carries them aloft. So no wonder the spirit here is a she, because the spirit is like a mother eagle who protects emerging new life, gently yet boldly and miraculously performing and guiding the birth and growth process to full completion until baby birds fly and the universe is made. What if that's what God is like? And what if God is like that for you? Almost a year ago now, we were as a country experiencing the birth of the Me Too movement, which happened in response to a lot of women coming forward with stories regarding their tragically and shamefully hidden experiences with sexual violence. It began to become very clear at that time that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. So guess what happened? Right here in the Twin Cities, my friend Sarah Wilhelm Garbers that was here last week um, and a couple other female clergy decided that they as leaders in the church needed to respond. And they needed to create a safe space for women in their communities and throughout the Twin Cities to experience healing from their wounds. So they had a community-wide worship service specifically designed for survivors of sexual violence. And at the beginning of the gathering, every clergy member in the room, we were about 30 of them, male and female, mostly female, and most of the men were gay. <laughs> Just a little side note. But, um, they were facing the congregation, and they read aloud statement after statement, crafted statement of apology on behalf of clergy for mishandling the conversation and not for handling it sooner. For letting shame run the narrative rather than offering a space for healing and hope. What I saw there as I sat and wept were mother birds caring for their young. Women who decided that the healing of hearts was more important than inaction or apathy. Women who just couldn't do nothing. While seeing God's children alone, broken and afraid, so they made a nest. A mother eagle, the feminine heart of God at work. And then God describes, I dare dare say, herself, in this way in the book of Hosea. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Ugh, right? This powerful and even grotesque imagery of a mother bear defending her young shows us the mother heart of God who, when confronted with the loss of her children, displays a power unmatched. I believe we see this image of God at work in Exodus chapter one. One of my favorite yet lesser known parts of the Exodus story. In the beginning of Exodus, as most of you know, the Israelites find themselves multiplying greatly in the land of Egypt, but for that reason, they are held captive. Pharaoh is terrified of this growing number of Hebrew, and he decides to act, but out of fear. He demands that all of the Hebrew boy babies because the girls are obviously not a threat, be killed. And then by, I believe, divine intervention, he employs two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah to do the killing. But as we read in Exodus 1 verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, they let the boys live. Do you guys see what is happening here? This great juxtaposition at work. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in his day, but he's afraid. He's afraid of people. But it says the midwives feared God, and they showed absolute strength and courage. And here's the best part of the story. Do you know what they say when Pharaoh asks them why the Hebrew boys were still alive? They say this, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see that moment? Standing before this powerful yet feeble in heart man, saying, man, these Hebrew women, they don't mess around. They just pop those babies right out. But think about the rest of the story. What these Hebrew women did was essential to who we are today. Because of their courageous defiance, a baby named Moses was born. And the Israelites were delivered from slavery, and the rest is history, Shifra and Puah, the mother bears of the Israelites. So, what about Jesus? What about this image of the invisible God? As Paul describes in Colossians 3, who shows up in male form? Well, there's a monologue from Matthew chapter 3 that I've invited a few friends of mine here uh, to share with us, so I'm going to ask them up, and they're already up here. (laughs) Um, And as they get ready to share with us, I'll just give a little bit of context. Um, This speech occurs in the book of Matthew not long before Jesus is betrayed by Judas, handed over to be crucified. It's after he's ushered into the city on a donkey, and he goes to the temple where he causes a little bit of a scene because Jesus is really mad and for good reason. Talk about a mother bear. Let's listen. Then Jesus said to To
2: the the crowds crowds and to to his his disciples, disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you.
3: But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them.
0: Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But
3: you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers.
2: And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven.
0: Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you,
3: teachers of the law and
2: Pharisees, you you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees,
3: you you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe woe to to you, blind guides.
0: You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it.
2: Woe Woe to you, teachers of the the law and Pharisees, Pharisees. you You hypocrites.
3: hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, Justice,
2: mercy, mercy, and and faithfulness. faithfulness.
3: You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the
2: former. You 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 blind blind guides. You
0: strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe Woe to you, you, teachers teachers of the the law and
2: Pharisees, Pharisees. you You hypocrites. hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the
3: law and Pharisees, you You hypocrites! hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, Pharisees, you hypocrites!
0: You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started.
2: You snakes, snakes. you You brood brood of of vipers. vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell?
0: Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers some of them you will kill and
2: crucify.
3: Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all, all the righteous, righteous blood that, that has been, been shed, shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel. To the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Whom you
2: murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will, you, all this will come, come on this, this
3: generation.
0: generation. Jerusalem! Jerusalem.
3: Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem 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 you who kill the prophets Jerusalem. and stone those who sent you Jerusalem. how often I have longed Jerusalem. to gather your children together Jerusalem. as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings Jerusalem. and you were not willing
2: Jerusalem
0: look Jerusalem. your house is left to you desolate Jerusalem For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
1: Did you hear it? Did you hear the mother heart of God? Woe to you, over and over again, woe to you. This expression in the Greek is pronounced, which is primarily an expression of grief. So it might sound like Jesus is just really, really mad here, but I believe like it so often happens for us, his anger is due to a profound sense of grief. If you were here a few weeks ago, Micah talked about lament and I'm so glad that he did because I think what we're experiencing in our world today, there's no more Christ-like experience than lament. Our response is lament. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. And in the name of God, lines were being drawn of who was in and who was out and what's worse, And this is what Jesus makes so clear in his statements, that by the very act of keeping people out, they themselves are not entering the kingdom. And what a reason to grieve. Everyone dying a spiritual death because of greed and the need for power. The prophet Jeremiah, often called the weeping prophet hears the voice of God and speaks to the women of his day, calling them to lead in the way of grief. He says this, Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. And you know what I think? I think that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 23. He's joining his voice with the wailing women because they are the feminine heart of God on display. By far, my favorite feminine metaphor for God is the one Jesus uses at the end of this passage. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. This statement of Jesus is recounted in the book of Luke as well, but it includes a statement of his that Matthew leaves out right beforehand where Jesus refers to King Herod as a fox. So in the same moment, Jesus uses a fox to describe Herod and then a mother hen to describe himself. When do you think a fox and a hen most often interact? When the fox is fixing to do what? attack and what's the only defense that a mother hen can offer in that moment herself she gathers her chicks under her wings and sacrifices herself on their behalf and I want to suggest just a suggestion just an idea here that here in this moment Jesus is foreshadowing his own death on the cross, the most vivid, most tragic, most beautiful picture of the mother heart of God. When I first heard that connection made by my friend, Jair Swigert, who's gonna be here teaching with us next week, it blew me away. A God who not only is a father to the fatherless, an Abba Father, a daddy God, who knows how to provide and guard, both of those images, so helpful and so good, so necessary, but also, who holds the fierce, powerful love of a mother who will literally stop at nothing to show it, and will most definitely speak to any earthly power or voice that would attempt to cut down or diminish the worth of her children, or even worse, try to keep them away from her. So in closing this morning, just a few thoughts. First, a word to the women here. God sees you. You are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a voice that maybe you are terrified to use for whatever reason, but please don't not use it. We need to hear you. Because it is the voice of the feminine heart of God speaking through you. And on behalf of a culture and a church that has not said that as clearly as it should have in the past, I'm sorry. And secondly, a word to the men. God sees you. You are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a voice that maybe you are terrified to use for whatever reason. But please, don't not use it. We need to hear you because it's the voice of the masculine heart of God speaking through you. And on behalf of a culture and a church that has done a really poor job of teaching you how to share your power equally with women, I'm sorry. And then thirdly, just a little quiet, humble invitation. If you find yourself this morning, for whatever reason, in need of a moment to embrace, the mother heart of God or let the mother heart of God embrace you and if you need to be fiercely loved what if God fiercely loves you like a mother bear what if God like a mother eagle creates a safe space for you to heal grow flourish and eventually fly what if that's what Jesus is like What if that's what God's heart is like? What if God's heart is just as beautiful as a mother's heart? We're gonna pray and after a moment of silence, Michael, Sarah, and the band are gonna lead us in a song to embrace the beauty of Jesus. But before we do that and we enter into a moment of silence, will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, Our mother, and God our Father, would you be here with us now? I pray that you would speak to those who need to hear your voice, and that those who need to hear it, that their ears would be open. I pray this in your name, amen.
0: Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com. Or on Facebook at www.facebook.com. Backslash community. Or on Twitter, awaken community. See you next time.